2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible, senior producer for Where We Live. Each year, we broadcast nearly 200 episodes of programming. As 2023 comes to a close, we are highlighting some of our favorite conversations. Today, we're sharing three important interviews on mental health and trauma. First up, we're going to listen back to our conversation with Kate Diaz. She's the president of the Connecticut Education Association. She spoke with host Catherine Shen about school shootings, lockdown drills, and how they're impacting student and teacher mental health.
3: With your own personal experience, as well as being with teachers on the ground all the time, you know, how do you think teachers feel about lockdowns and also the very, very active fear of active shooters?
4: Well, I think it's an ever-present reality for us, unfortunately. You know, every day we go into our schools and we don't really think about this as a dominant feature of our day because it could weigh us down and really impede our ability to do what we really want to do, which is uplift children. But I think it is in the back of our minds at all times where we're constantly sort of doing threat assessment, if you will, which is not a natural act for a teacher for us to necessarily look at our space and go, "Okay, where are the exit points? What are the potential items I could use if an attacker came in? Where am I going to shelter my students? Um, But every time that there's an incident, every time there's something that happens, this becomes in the forefront of a teacher's mind. I know right after Uvalde, I heard from a lot of people about how it really brought that fear, that anxiousness right to the forefront. It brought us back to that place of what if I'm next and what am I going to do? And I think that's a really stressful and anxious space for us to live in. And we do our best to kind of shield kids from that. Uh, but it's real for us,
3: and we have talked about too. And you mentioned Uvaldi. We had chatted after that, really focusing on on teachers' traumas. And with that too, because when anything happens, you're like you said, it's back to everyone's minds. So, how often are you thinking about a real scenario? You know, the potential that this could happen at your school.
4: Well, I think that we have an obligation as educators to think about that and to know what would we do and how would we manage the situation because it's not an abstract thought. It's almost interesting to me that we do fire drills as sort of perfunctory acts, things that we do, but we don't necessarily feel the same level of anxiousness around those. It's the reality that the school shootings are occurring with greater regularity that we can't act like it's something that won't happen. So I think when you kind of ponder it like teachers, we think about it at the beginning of the year when we're setting up our classrooms. We think about it when there certainly is an incident. I know right after Uvalde, I talked to a lot of teachers who said, you know, I'm sitting at the playground, I'm looking at it, trying to figure out where are our points of you know, protection and shelter and how would I move the kids? we had teachers talking about where do I put bookcases in my classroom so that I can put them in front of a door if I need to. Um, I had other colleagues who said, oh, I need a table added to my classroom because I know I can flip it on its side and hold it up against a door and use that as a sheltering object. So we think about those things as we set up and we establish our classrooms. We consistently assess, do we have what we need in the places we need it? We talk about anchoring our doors and how would we do that successfully? So it's not like it's a daily thing, but it certainly is something with regularity. um, And certainly anytime there's an incident, we are reassessing, do we have what we need? Do we know what we would do? And I think that's the part that is uh, with greater regularity than I wish it were for teachers.
3: Well, I was going to say, too, it sounds very jarring, actually, to hear that these are, these seems to be very tactical, strategic th- plans that teachers are doing as like prevention work, you know, before a school starts or before a semester starts or, or whatnot. But are teachers trained to handle situations, whether it be a lockdown or an active shooter? So when when it's actually happening?
4: So, I think we have a lot of conversations, and I know um, in the district I worked in, we did go through a little bit more intensive training where the police department came in, walked us through scenarios, walked us through, you know, how would we respond to active shooters? Um, in addition to sheltering in place, how would we fight back? What would we utilize? And that changed the dialogue in our space. Um, I often laugh. I still, to this day, have this giant glass paperweight on my desk. It's the size of a baseball, and it's very intentionally there, knowing that it's an object I could throw if I needed to. Um, I'm a math teacher, and we talked about, well, what the weight of our graphing calculators are substantial. We could we could use those objects. Um, but not every district goes through a truly tactical experience. We also found that that was really difficult for educators too, because we're not in this because we want to be tactically trained in aggressive tactics to, you know, respond to violence. Where that's not who educators are at their very core. So this is it, jarring is the right word. Uh, but practically speaking, we have those conversations more frequently it it sometimes is an ad hoc basis where teachers talk to each other and go, well, we saw this happen in in Uvalde. We saw this happen with Sandy Hook. We saw this happen in Virginia Tech. How are we going to learn from these things so that we're better prepared and more capable of responding Um, and knowing what the right thing to do? I think there's an awesome sense of responsibility when you have other people's children and their safety in your hands. And so, we really want to be capable. Districts talk about it. Uh, we have all have safety committees that are obligated to come up with a plan and a response that is um, communicated and shared and discussed. But the level of uh, engagement in that conversation will vary district to district.
3: Well, and I think the fact that graphing or graphic calculators are even considered as something you can throw at is a pretty amazing you know, point to me. And you mentioned this, too, where how do you feel about even having to worry about this? Because this is so real today versus, you know, many, 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 many years ago.
4: Well, I'll be honest. It actually is one of the saddest things in the world is that educators have to think about this. It's a practical thing. I have to do it. It's it's part of my work because that's my job is to keep these kids safe. But the fact that I have a world in which that's a reality is actually pretty sad Um, and as a high school teacher i can kind of contextualize it among you know young adults i think my struggle is with like my kindergarten teachers who think about shielding real babies from this kind of thing it really starts to have um, an emotional impact right like we love our students we care about them deeply and the fact that we have to contemplate and think about somebody coming and shooting at them or attacking them is just an, a really overwhelming sensation. And it feels unnatural, to be honest with you, because in our mind, schools are these vibrant, exciting, fun, joyful places. And to have this level of invasion, I think, is really um, it's overwhelming. When the first round of you know sheltering in place and how do we train children to do this occurred, I remember my children were young and in school and they came home and they were like, mom, we had to practice because in case there's like a deer gets into our school. And so there was this sort of masking of what we were doing, this idea that we're, we're trying to keep ourselves safe from a, a very imaginary kind of threat. As school shootings, I think became more prevalent, i am you know we had this issue of uh we can't hide this anymore we can't mask it it's real it is what it is and so what we had to start doing was being gentle with children and saying there are things there are there are bad people in the world and we have to be prepared and make sure because kids knew that there were school shootings you couldn't live in the state of Connecticut and not know that Sandy Hook happened. So, we had to talk to our kids in a very gentle way, but reassure them that we were going to keep them safe. We were going to do everything in our power to make sure that school was a safe place for them. And that reassurance is really had to land in the place of a classroom teacher because we have that close contact with kids. So, From grades, you know, your pre-K all the way through grade 12, you were really talking to kids about this is real. It did happen. We're not going to act like it didn't. But we've got your back and we're going to care for you and we're going to make sure that you're safe. Um, But it has been an interesting evolution because younger and younger students are very aware of what this threat looks like.
3: Well, we've been talking about how this is something that is in the forefront of adults and teachers, but it's also in the forefront of students' mind as well. And I'm wondering, too, if if you're hearing that, are students becoming numb to it? Because I've spoken with high school students who say, oh, you know, they hear an alarm, they're just kind of like, whatever. And even as a journalist, you know, we're not supposed to feel anything, right? But when I heard that, it just, you know, your heart drops because you're just thinking it could be an actual incident. So is that something that you've encountered too, perhaps with your older students where they're just very much like, well, this is our everyday lives now?
4: Oh, it absolutely is. Um, the practice of a lockdown, uh, we've instituted in my school district a multi like a series of lockdowns, right? We have soft lockdowns, medical lockdowns, hard lockdowns, and they have varying degrees of response. Sometimes we shelter in place. Uh, sometimes we literally will have to kind of practice being in the corner out of eyesight. Sometimes we just stay in our classroom and go about our business. So there is a sense of normalcy to a threat. And that is absolutely the, probably the saddest outcome of this, is that we as a society have normalized threatening children to the point where the children just assume, well, okay, you know, today's maybe not our day, but we'll practice, we'll follow what we're supposed to do, Uh, but it is normal for them. And when you talk to high school kids, you know, that's not something that they necessarily are comfortable with. They're not okay with it. Uh, They don't like that this goes on, but they're just aware that they're a little bit on the helpless side of things. Um, So I think that's a little bit disheartening that we have normalized this as just sort of what are you gonna do? There's nothing we can change. So we have to be um, as defensively proactive as we can. And that's one of those things that it's like, holy cow, right? Like that's an unbelievable thing that we've normalized for kids. So it's funny, kids are very straightforward and even high school students will just be real direct. And I taught through 9-11. I was in school when 9-11 occurred. I was in school for Sandy Hook. I was in school for Columbine. And all of those incidents, you know, they it it makes it real that's that we're not as safe as we want to believe we are. And we've we've popped children's bubble of innocence in that regard. Right. Like I remember growing up and not thinking about any of these things. Right. I felt really safe. I knew I mean, I'm of the generation where we left the house and didn't come back till dinner. Right. Like that's my normalcy. And these kids have a, a safety bubble that's really been popped and they, like us as educators, don't necessarily wear that on their sleeve every single day, but it is um, an honest part of their reality where they're very straightforward about, you know, I'm uncomfortable. Or when certainly an incident occurs, kids will come in and kind of share with you, this is really stressful, this is really traumatic I can't believe this happened again. Uh, we have to have the conversation uh, with high school kids. You actually have to let them talk about how they feel, validate, yeah, of course, You know, of course you are, this scares you. Why wouldn't it, right? We And then we really do have to go back to that place of, okay, well, what do we do here to try and um, take control of our situation? to put ourselves in a space where we can find those aspects of safety and security that we anchor in because i think we can't let the fear overtake us and that's really the lesson with kids that we talk about is fear is appropriate right fear saves you um but fear shouldn't rule your life so know what you're what you're dealing with understand your opportunities to be um you know protective and uh following you know obviously as an educator one of my roles with the kiddos is always listen kids if a crisis occurs your job is to follow me because my job is to keep you safe and i want them to have that reassurance and listen i've taught 17 and 18 year olds and when they you know look you in the face and talk about this stuff they're as scared as a 7 year old this is terrifying so my job is to help them feel like they don't need all the answers because i'm going to help them we try as educators to think about what is trauma-informed instruction look like? How do I, as an educator, support all kids in this conversation? That was Kate Diaz,
2: president of the Connecticut Education Association and a high school math teacher in Manchester School District. Our summer intern, Stacey Otto, produced that conversation. Coming up next, we hear an important conversation on the Israel-Hamas war. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible. We are listening back to some of our favorite conversations on where we live in 2023. At the start of the Israel-Hamas war, we zoomed in on trauma in that region and the ripple effects it had here in the U.S. In this segment, we hear from Dr. Julian Ford, professor of psychiatry at the University of Connecticut Health Center. We also hear from Steve Sosby, president and founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, and Rabbi Deborah King. From the B'nai Tichna Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield, Connecticut. A note to our listeners that this conversation took place on November 11th. Some of the numbers, including civilian death toll in Gaza, are out of date. This is Steve Sosby talking about trauma felt in this region.
5: I think it's important for all the listeners to remember that the the trauma that the Palestinians have been experiencing, and particularly in Gaza, because 70% of the population there are refugees from 1948, they've been experiencing intergenerational trauma for generations. In 1948, you know, th- hundreds of thousands of refugees fled into the Gaza Strip and have been living in eight refugee camps there since. And that, that trauma has been passed down through generations from the grandparents, great-grandparents, parents, through this current generation of of losing their land, losing their homeland, and then living under military occupation for generations and, and having these, um, you know, bombing campaigns and continuing uh, trauma experiencing on the ground there with homes being destroyed and people being killed for, for many, many generations. This isn't a new thing. It, this is the most extreme version of it that we've ever seen. But this generational trauma is part of the Palestinian um, experience. It's part of who they are as a people. And, uh, and that has already, we've already seen that over years produce certain aspects in their society, in their culture, as a result of being so heavily traumatized and that intergenerational trauma being part of the Palestinian life. And and I think it's only going to be much worse and the impact that it's going to have. How are we going to rebuild a civil society there? How can we build a civil society? in Gaza, in which people can um, develop and live in a more normal environment when their entire population has been traumatized for generations, and this is the most extreme version, and we have no idea when it's going to end. We've already lost 5,000 children, 1,000 of them are living under or buried under rubble, some of them are slowly dying to the cries of the people around them that can't save them. How are we, and, and this may go on to be another 5,000, another 10,000, another 20,000 children. Let's remember one thing here, there's 1 million children in Gaza. If we were to equate the number of casualties in Gaza today to the American population of 72 million children, we would have 350,000 dead American children in one month killed by bombs landing on their homes, churches, mosques, hospitals, schools, 350,000 dead Americans. What kind of trauma would we have in our country if 350,000 American children were killed in one month by a foreign occupying army? What impact would that have on us as a society? What trauma will we experience? Not individually, each of us with the loss of our family members and our children and our neighbors, but as a society. That's what the Gaza people are going through. That's what they've been going through for generations. And this is what we have to take into consideration when we talk about trauma. It's not just happened in the past month. It's been happening since 1948.
3: And Dr. Ford, I want to bring here, uh, in here because we have talked about this is definitely not a new thing. This is a this is- unfortunately, extremely familiar for a lot of people in the region. And Steve described earlier, too, that there is a very uh, important need to get to the region to provide psychological first aid immediately. So can we talk about the impact of being able to address those needs early? You know, How does addressing it early impact long-term health outcomes?
1: The best thing that we can do is to provide as much safety and security for those children and those communities as fast as possible. And that that's that's a much larger political challenge. But I think that that's the one that Steve is really focusing our attention on, and that is crucial. While we're doing that, and hopefully as that becomes more part of the these children's lives and experiences, that there that there is safety, that there are ways in which they can actually be begin to see their community being rebuilt. While that's happening, Many of these children are going to need to, to find ways and, and have people who help them to express what they have experienced. And for, for children, the experience of trauma is often one that they can't put into words. It's something that they may show through a drawing or through play. Uh, and having opportunities to simply be in a safe place with adults or adults who are actually aware of the fact that children need to express this impact. It's not to get rid of it. It's not to get over it. It's simply to be able to begin to make sense of what they're feeling because they've had to shut off their feelings in order to simply survive. And when their feelings get turned back on, they need a place and security and support to express those feelings. That can happen in therapy. It can happen in with religious officials. uh, It can happen with parents. But it It's something that absolutely is essential so that children don't bottle up this traumatic stress and carry it with them for sometimes decades and over generations, as Steve said.
3: We're hearing from Dr. Julian Ford, who's a clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry and law at the University of Connecticut Health Center, and Steve Sosby, who's the president and founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. And joining us now to talk about how this war is creating a lasting impact on those outside of Israel and Gaza is Rabbi Deborah Cantor. She's a spiritual leader of B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for being with us today
0: thank you catherine thank you so much catherine um this is a really really difficult time um steve spoke to the um horrors of uh being in of children and and their families being uh in a place that's that's under siege that's part that's in a war jews and palestinians are two Traumatized peoples laying claim to basically the same land, and with very different narratives. And over now generations, uh, it's more and more difficult for um, each of these people, peoples to to even kind of grasp what uh, another narrative might be, um, but. But I think each side eventually needs to acknowledge the loss and trauma of the other. Um, And before that, there's so much work to be done to undo the dehumanization, the fear, the anger, the sense of hopelessness on both sides that there can ever be peace. Um, One of my Muslim friends uh, who reached out to me uh, towards the beginning of the war um, and after, after October 7th, um, said um, when when we get to a point where we cannot acknowledge um, the the pain and suffering of each other's children, um, what hope is there? And she said, I think that God is not pleased with us. You know, when people are threatened, when people are afraid. Uh, when people are just t- terrified when their existential fears we don't bring our best selves forward we can't possibly do that and I think that you know Dr Ford spoke to that uh certainly it's um the the reverberations of 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 trauma for children reach you know affect their entire lives um and uh I I want to just speak to, how this is affecting since i'm a rabbi i'm not a i'm not a geopolitical ec- expert there are all kinds of moving parts uh that are so beyond our control in terms of just the whole region uh and what's going on this is not simply uh a war between hamas and israel it, it's the uh, there's far more uh geopolitical imp- implications but i'm just a rabbi so I will say this. Um, today is the thir- is day 35 uh, of the war uh, since Hamas invaded Israel uh, in October. Today, we also mark 85 years, yesterday and today, since Kristallnacht, that pogrom on November 9th and 10th, 1938, when Nazis stormed uh, across Germany and Austria, demolishing uh, Jewish homes and hospitals and synagogues and businesses, and took, you know, took um, Jewish men, 30,000 Jewish men captive, hundreds murdered. And that was seen, that is seen as the beginning of the Holocaust. My synagogue, uh, B'nai tikva Shalom, was founded by refugees German refugees who came here in the wake of Kristallnacht so for us this date really reverberates very strongly and I will tell you that right now um at any time, I, I run into another Jewish person not just in my synagogue I could be in the grocery store and I run into somebody else from the Jewish community and they look at me and they're stricken and they say how are you doing and and they and they say it's happening again isn't it rabbi so the shock of the events on october 7th um the grief of of those lost the existential fears the the fact is that Jews around the world feel so deeply, deeply connected to Israel, um, even if we don't have family there. Many of us do have family. We have good friends. I have so many friends whose children and grandchildren uh, have been called up to the war. Everybody knows someone who was murdered or taken captive. Um, and there's also, at the same time, there there has uh, there's a sadness about. Um, Non Jewish friends who haven't reached out, who think that we're okay when we're not, we're decidedly not okay. And that uh, real palpable fear over the enormous increase in anti Jewish rhetoric and attacks around the world, which began immediately after the Hamas invasion, before Israel had retaliated in any way. And that sense of, oh my God, Rabbi, it's happening again. Of course it is. We knew this. Um, and I, what I try to say is, look, it's not 1938. The world is a different place, um, but emotionally, that's where we are. Emotionally, that's where we are. Well, and with and, what you just uh,
3: shared, you know, you mentioned yeah. reverberation, of course, historically, and also the yeah. very palpable fear that that communities are feeling today. And so yeah. as, as a spiritual leader, you know, as you're having these conversations with various community um, members, as you have been providing counsel and support for people, are you hearing about more mental and emotional issues resurfacing because of this? It sounds like oh, you absolutely. are with what you're sharing. You know, yeah. Are you seeing more people being impacted by secondary trauma? Oh, yes,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'm counseling people. a uh, 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 on ways, I think that Dr. Ford would probably recognize, you know, ways to try to mitigate uh, some of the trauma that people are are feeling right now—a kind of secondary trauma um, that people are feeling right now, you know. And I ask them, where do you get your news? And they'll say, well, I have a 24-hour news station, you know, on at all times. And I say, okay, first turn off the television. You need to limit. You need to know what's going on, but you need to limit what you're doing. You need to reach out to others. You need to be, you know, um, we need to nurture a sense of hope that at some point, uh, you know, wiser heads will prevail and there could be different kinds of leadership in Israel, Palestine, uh, and that there could be support for um, diplomatic and negotiated means to provide safe and secure uh places for both of these very traumatized people but i am uh, you know i i am meeting with people you know for coffee uh doing a lot of pastoral um hair for folks that are just terrified they are just terrified and they are feeling uh this very bleak sense of oh my god it's happening again
3: and Dr. Ford, I want to bring you back here to sort of respond to what both Steve and Rabbi Cantor has to say. You know, it's a lot to impact. I am very aware of this. Um, we talked about intergenerational trauma, secondary trauma, and reverberations from, you know, past historical events. You know, anything that jumped out to you, Dr. Ford, that you would like to respond to?
1: Well, I think that both Rabbi Cantor and Mr. Sosby are, are are very poignantly reminding us that this is this is an experience that generations have had, that entire communities have had, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Muslim, or any other religion or culture. And that it, in addressing this, we have to remember that every one of us is, is affected. And what Rabbi Cantor was just describing, I think, is so important. As we reach out and make sure that we're not isolating ourselves, because of the sense of threat because of the shock because of the feeling of helplessness just to remember that we're not just simply getting support for ourselves but we're reminding others that there are those that there are those of us who deeply care we may not be able to do anything directly for the children in Gaza or the children and families in Israel but we can do things that make thing that make this world safer and more secure in our own communities. And that actually makes a fundamental difference. Now, I don't want to suggest that that, that replaces the kinds of efforts that Mr. Sosby is is making and, and his uh, relief fund or the efforts that are being made in, in Israel uh, to support those who have been affected and who are still being affected. And I, I work with colleagues in Israel who have done amazing work to help people recover from trauma both people of, of the Jewish faith, but also those of the Arab, uh, of the Muslim faith. Everything that those those people are doing directly, we can do in our own lives, and our own communities, and that makes a difference, and that can help us to not just become emotionally numb to the these terrible circumstances.
3: And we just have a couple of minutes left, but I have a final question for both Steve and Rabbi Kantor. I'll start with Steve. Um, you know, as people are working up close to this trauma right now, How are you taking care of yourself?
5: Well, that's a good question. I appreciate you asking me that. Every day I wake up and ask my staff, I send a text to my staff, my 40 colleagues, social workers, field workers, accountants, procurement officers, program managers, I ask them if they're alive. And I've run out of other ways to ask that because after 40, nearly 40 days of this, um, you know, there's really not much else to ask, but hey, are you still alive? Uh, and, and and that's a hard thing to do every single day. They have families, these are friends of mine. These are people I've worked with for years. So obviously, uh, you know, finding a way to take care of myself and my family, My wife's a pediatric oncologist. She works and helped to build the cancer department in Gaza. It's, it's her life mission to treat children with cancer. And now she's today being traumatized by the scenes of that department being bombed and destroyed, and that her patients are leaving the hospital waving white flags in wheelchairs and have no place to go so it's trauma that's affecting us now what we tell ourselves every day is that we're not on the ground in gaza it's not our lives that are being destroyed we're connected as human beings with emotions and feelings and love and compassion for our brothers and sisters there and this is not just compassion and love for our brothers and sisters in gaza who we're connected to personally as friends as colleagues as people we work with and had no firsthand and have food and have eaten in their homes and celebrated life together but also compassion for our brothers and sisters in Israel who've also suffered. And we recognize that, but what, what, how we can take care of ourselves in my opinion is just channel our grief and our energy and our anger and our frustration and our sadness and depression into positive action. There's nothing else we can do right now. Yes, we have to take care of ourselves, but we also have to take care of the people whose lives are can affect. And uh, I think there, is, there are things we can do. Uh, it's not hopeless. We have to rebuild. We have to rebuild our cancer department. We have to, Find treatment for kids who are injured. We have to support initiatives that will bring peace and healing to all parties there. And most importantly, we have to bring healing to these poor children in Gaza. There's a genocide being committed against them right now, and we have to put a stop to it. Those are American bombs. Those are American weapons. It's our leaders who are responsible. We as American taxpayers are responsible. We have to take responsibility for what's happening there and put a name to it.
3: Well, thank you so much, Steve, for for sharing that. And Rabbi Cantor, I want to pose the same question for you. Unfortunately, we only have about a minute or two left. But as you know, people are working up close to this trauma as well. You know, how are you taking care of yourself as you're talking to your congregation?
0: That's what my therapist asks me every week. Are you taking care of yourself, Deb? Um, and I think that I, I try, I try very hard to take the advice that I give to other people, which is, uh, which is hard. I'm better at giving the advice to others, but I think that we have to, um, find, find, uh, places that we can make an impact and, um, and we can make an impact, you know, we can support folks who are doing humanitarian work. We can, um, we can, um, act with extra kindness toward one another. Um, You know, I'm filled with hurt and fear and anguish for my people and for the civilians in Gaza. And it's just such a dark time. I I think we need to acknowledge what a difficult time this is. Um, I need. We need to acknowledge that you know that our that your Jewish friends are not okay. Uh, your Palestinian friends are not okay. Um, we we need to act with extra kindness and nurture a sense of hope. Hope that things can get better. That the the horrors of this time uh, will at some point soon, please, lead to something new and better on both sides. Uh, with a different kind of leadership for Israel and and Gaza. Um, And, um, you know, I'm I'm honored to be on the board of trustees of HIU, the Hartford International University for Religion and Peace, where we train students from all over the world to engage in deep dialogue, to listen. We train peacemakers who do amazing work around the world. Um, and, And it's hard for many of us here um, my Muslim and especially Palestinian friends, it's hard for us to talk to each other because we are in such deep pain. But and and now is not maybe the time to engage. But I hope and pray that the time will come again when we will um, join together once again um, and renew our friendships and our bonds and recognize, as Steve said, uh, the humanity um, of one another not the demonization but the humanity of one another and try to help support those who are building partnerships and relationships um both um palestinians and israelis and um and also uh you know within within israel uh uh among uh, uh the 20% of of uh, Muslim, of of, uh, Arab um, uh, citizens and others. So we want to support those things. And right now it's war and it's it's really dark.
2: That was Dr. Julian Ford, Steve Sosby, and Rabbi Cantor. To hear recent coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, visit our website, ctpublic.org. Coming up, we hear about local efforts to address the loneliness epidemic. Stay with us. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible. Earlier this year, this U.S. Surgeon General put out an advisory around the loneliness epidemic. In this final segment, we hear from Deb Bibbins, founder and CEO of For All Ages, a Connecticut collaborative to end loneliness.
6: So just to take a quick step back, um, Gary and I founded For All Ages back in 2019. And um, that organization is all about connecting the generations to uh, to reduce loneliness and to reduce ageism. And so since 2019, we have been uh, hosting and facilitating programs that bring people together across the generations. Um, While we have been doing that over the past four and a half years, we heard from lots of people, um, both older, younger, in between, um, from clinicians, um, from folks in the in the public health sector, um, and talking about h- how many people that they knew were lonely or socially disconnected. And we realized that the, the problem was bigger than we even had anticipated when we launched For All Ages. Um, And that is when we started really thinking about how can we do something to impact Connecticut's residents in a real positive way, bigger than for all ages intergenerational programs. And so we put our heads together with a bunch of really smart people and designed the Connecticut Collaborative to end loneliness. Um, We had been in touch with Senator Murphy and with others uh, about this work and launched it this summer following our Surgeon General's um, historic advisory, as you mentioned early uh, earlier. And so at this point, um, yeah. I'm really pleased to say that we have formed a steering committee. We have brought now um, a number of people on, senior leaders from various organizations across the state. Um, and, and we have also been focusing on our first work stream that we're going to launch, which is focused on patient loneliness. And so, it, very specifically focused there, we've brought folks from the Connecticut Department of Public Health. We have brought um, health insurer representatives, and we have brought clinicians, um, folks that see patients day in and day out, um, both younger and older, and everything in be- everyone in between, all ages, um, to, to really think about how can we do something where someone comes into an office and they talk about being socially disconnected. Uh, And finding ways to identify and then provide solutions. Um, I think that's the biggest piece. Uh, And that's going to take a little bit of work from all of us working together across the state to to identify solutions uh, and, and places where people can go to improve their social connectedness.
3: And I think the fact that we're having this conversation today, and I know it's ongoing for many people, it's such a big deal because I can't imagine talking about this, say, a decade ago or maybe even five years ago. And the fact that we have an alert from Dr. Vivid Murthy about this epidemic addressing both isolation or social disconnectness and, and loneliness. Deb, can you help us distinguish these issues? You know, how are they different from each other?
6: Sure, Uh, you know, I really think that a lot of people do get, um, they they confuse both of them, so thank you for asking that. Um, Social isolation is really an objective term. And so you can identify and you can see, you can visually see whether people are isolated, meaning they are on their own, or whether they are surrounded by other people. Um, And so that is social isolation, it's very objective. The much more difficult component um, is loneliness. And loneliness is a feeling that one has that they don't belong. So they can be around a, a group of people. They can be at a party or at a social gathering and still feel lonely because they don't feel a sense of belonging and a sense of connection with those that are around them. Um, and, and so if you were to draw a, a Venn diagram with you know the the two um ovals, if you will, there there would be an intersection in the middle. Um so one oval could be social isolation, the other would be loneliness. There is an intersection. Um, social isolation can cause loneliness, and the reverse is also true. Loneliness can cause one to become socially isolated.
3: And we're here to talk about this issue, which impacts all ages, like you mentioned earlier. And I think for a lot of people, we we tend to think of the elderly population first when we're thinking about loneliness, just because retirement or you're ending a job and whatnot. But another maybe surprising fact about this epidemic, it's actually young people are more likely to feel
6: loneliness. Can you talk about that, Deb? Sure. You you know, we've seen some research from a variety of places, um, Cigna being one where they found that um, nearly 80 percent of young adults age 18 to 24 are feeling lonely on a regular basis. And they've identified that young adult population as the loneliest. Um, Brigham uh, Young University also has been doing some research in this area and, and focused on youth and young adults. Um, And they have found that those populations are experiencing much higher rates of loneliness than other generations.
3: And can we talk about um, how did the pandemic sort of compound these issues? I think we know that this is something that had pre-existed. But of course, with the pandemic, it has exacerbated a lot of issues, including what we're talking about today.
6: Yes, So loneliness has been a problem um, for decades. Um, It has gotten worse over the past, say, 50 to 70 years. Um, Prior to the pandemic, approximately 60% of Americans of all ages were feeling lonely. During the pandemic, understandably, the social isolation that we all had to endure um, exacerbated the problem. And the research um, shows that at, during the pandemic, approximately eighty-five percent of Americans were feeling lonely. So that number has now come back down to around sixty percent, but it is still at an epi, actually at an epidemic level. Um, the pandemic, I, I think one of the one of the only positives that I can think about that came out of the pandemic is that more people are talking about this issue that we're talking about this morning, and that's a really good thing. Uh, This is a problem that we all face um, and that we can help each other come out of. Social health is the foundation of our mental and physical health. And I would say a decade ago, people were not talking about it in that way. I think we all understand it, but we couldn't, um, I, I think, have the words to frame it out and to understand it. And so we now know as social beings, social connectedness is important to all of us, and it is, as I, as I mentioned, the foundation of both our mental and our physical health. Um, when we are not socially connected and when we are feeling lonely, um, it, it, we're more likely to feel anxious. Um, we're more likely to, to feel depressed. Uh, we're more likely to, as older adults, um, have, heart, have heart disease or potentially have a stroke. Um, You know, one of the most significant findings that Gary and I talk about an awful lot when we're out talking to people is that older adults who are lonely have a 50% higher probability of developing dementia. And so if we can take a step back and just absorb that for a moment, we can help older adults reduce the probability of developing dementia simply by ensuring that they stay socially connected. And if they're not socially connected, helping them find those opportunities to do so.
3: Deb, I'm, I'm nodding my head. You can't see it, but I'm nodding my head. That, <laughs> <laughs> I agree that it's just something that I think people are a lot more comfortable with talking about, especially if we're talking about it, you know, live on air. Hopefully, uh, people will find it to be more comfortable to talk about it personally, just like you and, and uh, Gary, who are you able to sort of create this whole sort of movement because of this. And we'll get into this more a little bit later on. But I also want to talk about the stigma around talking about these issues. You know, is there a stigma? And how do you address that?
6: There definitely is a stigma. There, there historically has been shame associated with loneliness, which is really unfortunate. Um, and what Gary and I share with folks as we're out talking um, to, to various groups throughout the state, we want people to think about loneliness the same way they think about hunger. So when you're hungry, it means that you need food. And when you're lonely, it simply means that you need social connection. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you should feel shame. It simply means that you need to go out and get socially connected and find those opportunities, whether they be with volunteering with a local nonprofit or joining some type of club around a hobby that they enjoy.
2: That was Deb Bibbins, founder and ceo of for all ages a connecticut collaborative to end loneliness that segment was produced by katie pellico to see our entire list of best of conversations visit ctpublic.org slash where we live where we live is hosted by Catherine chen and produced by me tess terrible and katie pellico our technical producer is Kat pastor download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app and thank you so much for listening